0: Father, we thank you so very much for your son. We thank you so very much for everything you blessed us with. We ask that as we open up your word and as we spend time in your in your word, that uh, your spirit will be moving in our hearts and you, that you would be uh, correcting us and changing us and uh, making us more like your son, Jesus Christ. That you would help us gain wisdom and uh, that we may live in a way that's appropriate uh, and live in a way that's pleasing to you. We thank you and love you in your son's name. Amen. Um, I, I don't know if you remember the story about the guy who was in the, the Boston Marathon, and uh, he decided not to run it, so he got a taxi and got in a taxi, and drove towards the front of the, where the race was going to finish, where it was going to finish, he drove the finish line, and then he got out of the taxi, and then ran uh, a little bit, and he ended up winning, because he took a taxi. Um, I I think we all can agree that taxis are faster than running, and that's what ended up happening, so he, uh, you know, everybody hailed him as like one of the, you know, one of the great distance runners of all time, and then as people were looking, they're like, "I never saw that guy come by where we were. We were sitting on the sidewalk. We never saw this guy. We we should have saw that. You know, we should have seen this guy." Well, it came out that he cheated and he took a shortcut, and you know, people were really upset. Some people laughed that, "Yeah, I would. That's something I would do. I don't want to run. I'd rather take a taxicab." There was a lot of people upset. They felt like it undercut the uh, the race and the integrity of the race, right? So. Um, in fact I don't even know a single winner of the Boston Marathon but I know that guy who took a taxi. And so you think about it. You think imagine you're the winner, you actually legitimately won and you thought people don't even know that I won, all they're doing is talking about this guy who took a taxi cab, right? It kind of kind of ruins the kind of ruins the spirit of the race. Unfortunately, this also happens theologically as well there are people who believe that they can take a shortcut theologically they can by buying a book or a dvd series or attending a class or attending a school that all of a sudden they'll just come out wise at the end right there's a shortcut there's a great shortcut first of all that doesn't work god hasn't created us for shortcuts Uh, that's just not that's just not the way this this works not to mention it undercuts the work of the spirit it undercuts uh, how we view Jesus Christ as being valuable and, and, and as the one that gives us wisdom. Uh, it, it also uh, uh, causes us to miss some of the important teaching lessons that God has in our life uh, if we were to go the regular way, right? Sometimes he uses some experiences to grow us. So it's my hope that as we're going through the book of Proverbs that we we, we don't walk away going, oh, this is a get wise quick scheme where I can just read a proverb a day and keep Satan away and, uh, you know, I'll, I'll come out the other end super wise, wiser than my neighbor and going to be uh, super healthy and wealthy, right? That's not how this works. Uh, w- wisdom takes a long time and, and wisdom takes time to develop. And here in this particular section, we have a portrait of a wise man which we should all desire to be we should all desire to be wise and as we look at a wise person and we desire to be wise and as we strive to be wise ourselves through christ uh, we're going to see certain characteristics come out and this morning i want to point out three from proverbs 13 11 through 17 uh that's supposed to say hard work uh that says hard word that is not correct um first thing that we're going to see is that he is uh, a hard worker. He also can spell too. So um, yeah, no, he's a hard worker, right? So that's the first thing that we're going to find is that he's a hard worker. The second thing that we're going to see is that he has hope, but the right kind of hope. And the third thing we're going to see is that he's listening. He's listening to God's word. So let's look at this and let's look at how to strive to be wise. And let's look at the first one in Proverbs 11. In Proverbs 13, 11, we see that a wise man is one who has hard work. He's a hard worker. And so if I look at somebody who's wise, I'm going to see them putting in hard work. He says, notice, wealth obtained by fraud dwindles, but the one who gathers by labor increases it. So, verse 11 immediately has a a little bit of a translation translation issue. Uh, If you're reading from one translation, it would say, uh, Wealth by quick means or gathered quickly or in haste dwindles. Uh, Another one may say, Wealth gathered by vanity dwindles. And the New American Standard says, Wealth, ga- wealth gathered through fraudulent means dwindles. And the question is what, what is, what is Solomon trying to say and what's the best word to, to use here? Well, the, the Hebrew word that's used for fraud is, shows up lots of other places in the Old Testament. In fact, this word habel, fraud, uh, is the major word for the book of Ecclesiastes. In fact, it's probably some of the most famous statements in the book of Cle- Ecclesiastes uses this, for, this word, habel. Uh, You've probably heard the phrase vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Well, that word vanity there is habel. What's interesting when Solomon uses it in Ecclesiastes, he uses it as something that appears to have substance, right? It appears to to be something, to be real, uh, but as, as you get close to it and you try to grab it, you realize it's nothing but air. It's like a mirage, right? You look at it. You think there's something there, but there's really nothing there. And that's really the meaning of the word here that's used. So wealth by, we could say, by means of something that looks substantial but actually has nothing to it, dwindles. And it's for that reason, I think probably vanity is probably the best word to use here. Uh, Wealth gained by vanity. And the question is, well, what 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 does that look like? What does it look like for somebody to try to gain... Wealth in a vain way? Well, I think it simply means this. Anything that I do that I try to get rich quick, or anything that has the word scheme after it, is probably not a uh, wise endeavor and a wise way to gain wealth, right? So we can think in our minds of numerous get rich quick schemes that we've heard, or we've seen pyramid schemes, or I've known people that felt like they can amass wealth through gambling, through other means like that. And I think here Solomon is saying, look, if you go this way for vanity uh, and and, and you try to get wealth from vanity, it, it dwindles. On a side note, this word for vanity, fraud here, is also the same word that's used for idols. There's numerous times where the word, this word will be translated just idle. And so it, it has this idea of something that draws us away from the Lord. And so I, I, we could easily just put that right here. We could say that any wealth that is not sanctioned by God, that's not according to God's will or God's prescribed way, right, that is motivated by greed, right? What does Paul say in Colossians for us as believers? What is idolatry? Greed greed amounts to idolatry. So we could say any time that I'm trying to amass wealth because I'm greedy, that type of wealth will dwindle. It means nothing, right? It, it absolutely means nothing. But then notice the next part, right? The, the the antithesis to this. But the one who gathers by labor increases it. And so the, the sense is A wise person goes, okay, I'm not going to go after one of those get-rich-quick schemes. I'm not going to get involved in a pyramid scheme. I'm not going to sit here and gamble away my money. Rather, I'm going to show up to work. I'm going to work hard. I'm I'm going to do the things that are expected of me from my employer. And I'm going to work in such a way, not just for my employer merely, but for the Lord, ultimately for his honor and his glory. I, I think that's what a wise person does. So I don't think this is just talking about how to get wealthy. I don't think Solomon's really concerned about wealth. Remember, the underpinning of every single proverb is that phrase, the fear of the Lord. So you cannot truly interpret this proverb without that concept of the fear of the Lord. Now, there's another principle here. I don't want to dwindle away my time, but my mind is just filling with a lot of stuff. I've been spending a lot of time in Deuteronomy this week. And one of the principles that's found in Deuteronomy that would directly apply here is this principle that a Jewish person living under the Mosaic law, if they were obedient, God would bless them significantly. He said, I'll I'll open up the skies. It'll rain more than Astoria, Oregon. You'll have crops you won't even believe. You, it, it, you'll, you'll be so blessed, the world is going to look at you in envy because you're obedient to the law. But if you're disobedient, there's going to be famine. If you're disobedient, you're not going to have crops. If you're disobedient, all this stuff is going to happen. You're not going to stay in the land. And so Proverbs 13.11, in a sense, is a correct interpretation of the book of Deuteronomy. It's a correct interpretation and the correct application of the book of deuteronomy which then teaches us something else that's really important the importance of one obedience and then the importance of correct biblical interpretation right the proverbs help us understand even the bible itself and even bible interpretation so we as believers can look at this principle and go yes we need to work hard we need to be honest hard workers we, we shouldn't be frivolous with our money. We shouldn't be trying to get rich quick, show up to work, do our job, do it to the best of our ability for the honor and glory of Jesus Christ and provide for our family. And don't go spending money on stuff that I don't need to go be spending money on. Uh, and, don't, and don't act with a sense of greed. Don't make decisions on the base, basis of greed. So a wise person in verse 11, is a person who's a hard worker, and if you are becoming wiser, you are probably working harder, right? You become more, your work ethic grows, let me put it that way, the wiser we become, our work ethic grows, right? Now, there's another one in verse 12, notice this next one in verse 12, it says, hope deferred makes the heart sick, but desire for Fulfilled as a tree of life. Now, most of the commentators say something really interesting about this verse. And normally I don't like talking about the commentators as this group of nameless men who write books that I have in my office. I just refer to them as the commentators. But they all said something almost in unison. And and I kind of thought, you know what, I actually don't see it that way. They said verse 12 is simply a social observation. It was amazing. They they all said it in unison. It was like somebody told them to all say this. Solomon really isn't really trying to give us any principle of of what a wise person does or how the wise person thinks. Rather, Solomon's just observing society. When you make a promise and it doesn't come true, people get upset. But when you fulfill that promise, people are happy. Now, that is true, right? Right? There's a lot of times where people have promised things and it didn't come true. And think about how you thought about that particular situation. You said, oh, that's, that's not good. I'm not happy about that. So there is some, there is some truth to this, right? I mean, on a, on just on a basic logical lesson. However, I think this goes a little bit deeper. Remember, every verse must be interpreted with this idea of the fear of the Lord. So if I put that in the fear of the Lord into this verse then I think it almost kind of says something a little bit different. It it almost has the idea that a fool puts his hope in something that will not come true, right? So a person who fears God listens to God and takes him serious. Therefore, his hope will be in the Lord. A fool does not put his hope in things that will last. In fact, he puts his hope in things that will lead to his demise, So, hope deferred for a fool who puts his hope in all these myriad of things that go on throughout the week, puts his hope on the government, puts his hope on this, he puts his hope on that, he puts his hope on this, this teaching, that teaching, this book, this thought, that politician, this piece of legislation, puts his hope on all of these things, they don't come true, he becomes embittered, he becomes inside sickened, but a fool says, doesn't stop and go, well maybe I should look for something that actually does offer hope. He continues to place his hope on all these other things and becomes worse and worse. That's the kind of sense I'm getting here, that a, that a fool puts his hope in something that won't come true and it, it affects him on the inside. That, that, that constant putting your hope on something that doesn't come true affects you. But desire fulfilled is a tree of life. Think of that. The one who has true hope that will come true, and when that expectation that you have actually comes to pass, doesn't it, doesn't it feel good? Now think about it in light of Jesus. When Jesus comes back, how incredible will that be? We as believers have hoped and walked by faith our entire existence here. And then we will see Jesus face to face? This morning I was thinking of Paul's statement in 1 Corinthians where he said, There are three things that the church of Corinth should focus on it's hope, faith, and love. And then he said, But the greatest of these is love. Now, I. I don't know about you, but that, that always struck me a little strange. Why is love singled out as the greatest one? And this morning, as I was thinking of this passage, uh, I, had a, I had an epiphany, a light bulb moment. I thought, well, I will always have to exhibit love, even in heaven. Heaven is going to be a place of me exhibiting my love for others and for Jesus Christ perfectly. I will always love. There is never a point in my existence as a believer from here to the forever that way, I will always exhibit love. That is not true with faith and hope. Think about it faith is looking forward to something as if it is true right now in this reality. So I am walking by faith in Jesus Christ. Someday I will see him. I don't have to walk by faith if I see him, right? It's happened. I don't have to walk by faith. It's, the reality's there. And think about this. He's made all these promises. Do I have to hope in a promise already fulfilled? Nope. By definition, hope ends when the, when the expectation is fulfilled. So, I will always love, but I won't always walk by faith. I won't always walk by hope. Right now, I do. And so, when I think about this passage, and I think about... The the excitement that fills my mind of thinking someday I'm going to see Jesus Christ. Someday this hope that I have in Jesus Christ of my salvation will be fulfilled. That's going to be incredible. And it's that idea that I hope on the Lord. And I know that the Lord is faithful. That any time that there's a moment of discouragement in my life. I think of what Jesus Christ says he's going to do. And I believe him and isn't isn't your soul kind of re, like doesn't it get an extra shot of adrenaline, an extra shot of encouragement? My hope is in the Lord it 's not found in anything else, and there's this steadfastness and there's this expectation and it 's a true expectation when I think of that expectation i'm 'm invigorated to continue and live for him this this verse by the way, when I think of this idea of hope i, I can't help but think of the importance of studying end-time things. We're doing this in the book of Ezekiel. And, and sometimes it's really hard to say, why, do I, why are we spending so much time in something that we're not even going to be a part of, right? Uh, like we talked about the tribulation for a long time. Why? Well, because it speaks of our hope that we have in Christ. We know exactly what to expect. And it's when I know exactly what I'm supposed to expect and who I place my hope in helps me right now, right? It's not just some way for us to argue with the presbyterians down the road. This is a this is he tells us these things so that we have an appropriate hope so that we can make appropriate steps right now. So when I look at a wise person, a wise person places their hope appropriately on the Lord. A fool places their hope on things that will fail. Now, there's this last one in verse 13 through 17. When I think of a wise person, I think of a wise person who listens to God's word and listens to sound words, right? So from 13 to 17, it's somebody who listens listens to sound words. Notice what verse 13 says. It says, the one who despises the word will be in debt to it, but the one who fears the commandment will be rewarded now because of um, this verse if, if you see that phrase the word uh, and if you look at the parallelism that second half of the clause or the, the verse the second clause and you see that phrase the commandment it, it is because of these two words together that I would say that he's talking about the word of God once again the commentators really were not helpful this week They said, this is talking about the words and the commandments of one's earthly father. Now, that probably is true too, right? Uh, A fool doesn't listen to his parents, but a wise person takes what his parents says seriously. That is not what Solomon is saying here. He uses that word commandment, which speaks of the law. And because he's speaking of the law and one who fears the law will be rewarded because he's obedient to the law, then it would make sense that the opposite would be speaking about the law. And the one who despises the law will be indebted to it. So the word here speaks of the word of the scriptures. Now, we may quickly point out that Solomon did not have the New Testament, but that's okay. The principle is still sound, right? Because we have more revelation than Solomon had, but the truth is still there. If you despise the word, you despise the whole book, that's really bad. But if you fear God and keep his commandments, that's really good. That's the principle. I think it's a sound principle. But what's interesting is Solomon's use here in 13 of the one who despises the word. To, to despise here is to look at with contempt, to look at with disdain. It's to be rebellious towards, right? It, it, it's it's, it's to, to, to listen to something and to hate it, to want to push it away, to, to, to look at it and push it out of one's sight, out of one's mind. So one who is de- Despising the word is, is is pushing the book away from themselves, pushing the commandment away from themselves. So it's it's that they will hear the word and they'll go, "I don't have to keep it. I, I don't want to do that. I, I, I'm not. That that's not really my thing. It's not really part of my truth. I only want to speak my truth. I don't want to. I don't want to hear this truth. So they they push it away. Right. What's interesting is. Um, The person who despises it will be in debt to it. When we think of debt normally, normally we think of, uh, we ask somebody for money. They give us money and they say, okay, you got to pay us back so much amount of money. That's what debt is. So there's this obligation to pay back what you owe. In our legal system, we refer to somebody going to jail or paying a fine as what? Paying their debt to society. And the sense with that is that we as a society, through our elected leaders, at least this is how it's supposed to work, they represent us, and when they write laws, these laws represent us, and they say, this is what the people want as a law. When you violate this law that society sets, here's the punishment to make it right. And so when a person then transgresses against the law, their law is actually not against the government itself, but it's actually against us as a society. That's why they're paying their debt to society. There's this obligation, right, to be made right. There's something, there's something not right, and there's an obligation to make it right. When I think of debt here, and I think of debt as sin, it's the same principle as we would think of as somebody paying their debt to society. Think of it like this. God gives us a commandment. When we break the commandment, It's not that we're offending society. We might be offending society. But ultimately, we're offending who? God. A sin is ultimately a transgression against him. Every sin is a transgression against God. So I have a debt towards God. So if I despise the word and sin and refuse to listen, I now am obligated to pay that back with the Lord. Now, we would all be quick here to point out, well, you can't pay that debt back. You're right. You can't. That's why people who don't place their faith in Jesus Christ will suffer eternal conscious punishment away from the rescuing power of the Lord. They will never feel the comfort of the Lord. They will suffer for their sin and for their debt. They're paying off that eternal debt against an eternal God. But praise be the Lord that he sent Jesus Christ who paid that debt, right? So you either have to pay it or Jesus pays for it. He takes care of it. And when you come to God through Jesus Christ, that debt is paid for, okay? But the principle is you disobey. You are now indebted to the scriptures. You're now indebted to God. There's now an obligation to make it right. And a person who continually despises, Despises and pushes it away, only accumulates more debt and more offense against God. That's pretty serious. So then, the, then the, then the opposite is true. But the one who fears and, and, and fear here, I, I think, is, is to take serious, um, to, 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 to 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 contemplate and to obey. Um, There's a lot of illustrations we could use. For example, like when somebody works with electricity or somebody uh, uh, fires a firearm. You always have fear of those things, right? Especially with a firearm. You never point it at someone or something that you don't want destroyed. Why? Because you know that when you pull that trigger, bad things could happen. So you take it very serious. You're not... You're not casual with a firearm, right? You're very intentional with every action, making sure you know exactly where the barrel is, making sure your finger doesn't accidentally go on the trigger, right? You always have presence of, there's the gun, and you always treat it as if it's loaded, right? Because, because you have fear of the consequences. You, you take it serious. Well, well, with the commands, we're dealing with something that is far more important and could be potentially far more dangerous than a firearm, Right? We're dealing with God, the holy God, who, come, who, who, through the power of the Spirit, worked through men to write down these words. These are the words of God. These aren't opinions. And so when we come to this book, we come to it with that seriousness. This is what God says. This is serious stuff. This is live ammo. This is more dangerous than live ammo. So a person who has that understanding, that fear of the Lord, thus they come to the commandment saying, this is God's word. When they fear the commandment and obey the commandment, they will be rewarded. If you obey the commandment of the gospel to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you're eternally rewarded. Amen. And as God works on your heart, as you step out in faith and are obedient to God's word through the power of the Spirit, Guess what? God is happy and pleased with that. So think of this. A wise person is one who says, Okay, I'm going to take God's words serious. This isn't something casual, right? right, this This is the most important thing to think about. This book, the words of God. Now notice verse 14. Verse 14 says... The teaching of the wise is a fountain of life to turn aside from the snare of death. So a wise person looks at God's word, takes God's word seriously. Then they go out and teach people. What do you think the content of the teaching of the wise person is? The commandment which brings life, which brings reward. This is, this is the wise teaching. This is what a wise person does. If this is serious, then this is what we're spending our time talking about. S- sometimes you don't even know the laugh or the cry when you hear some people as they talk. I-, I remember one time I was on vacation with my family. We went to a church, and the guy spent a whole Sunday school hour talking about the migration patterns of the Canadian geese. Now, interesting to somebody, not necessarily to me, um, because I really don't care. But that was at church. Like, that wasn't at, like, a local library. That wasn't, like, at a Ducks Unlimited. That wasn't, like, at, like, a hunting show that we went to. This was at church. People were coming, saying, what is the most important thing that I need to know so that I can walk with the Lord? And the guy spent an hour talking about how the geese migrate from Canada down to Mexico. Waste of time, Right? You don't know whether to laugh or cry. You don't, you don't know whether to be really upset or just go, what's he thinking? A wise person wouldn't do that. A wise person would say, look, I, I, this is the most important thing. I, I want to talk about this. I want to show you this, right? The Apostle Paul, what did he say? I want to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified and the power of his resurrection. Why? Because that's what it's all about. All that other stuff is just commentary. That's the most important. This is the meat. So a wise person goes right to the meat, goes right to the source. Interestingly enough, it says the teaching of of a wise man is fountain of life. It's not that the words of a wise person are so intrinsically valuable that it brings life. It's that a wise person who fears the Lord and fears the commandments and talks about the commandments, his words come from the word, Therefore, his language is close to the word and telling them to go back to the word and it's in the word and in Jesus Christ that they find life and encouragement and refreshment. That's the meaning. I think there would be another implication here too that a wise person not only is a teacher of wise things but that a wise person listens to wise people and wise teaching. It's important that we're constantly being taught from God's word, constantly being washed out by God's word, constantly constantly in, in the book. And it's really important that we have a host of teachers who teach us God's word. And, and we're constantly listening to wise people as they talk about God's word. And there's a refreshment that comes. There, 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 it leads to life. And notice one of the major uh, caveats of this, of this teaching. It's to turn aside from the snare of death. A wise person who's lived life, understands God's word, understands the seriousness of it, understands then the seriousness of the other side. And it's interesting how the warning is to stay away from a snare. My dad uh, has recently moved into uh, trapping, something I've never really been interested in, but he's trapping uh, uh, critters to help ranchers. Uh, These critters are going after their cattle, and so to help out, he's setting up traps. And what's interesting is how he sets up those traps. He sets up those traps so that the thing on the trap is so enticing that the animal goes, I got it. I got it. I got it, right? I got to go eat that thing. Or I got to go over there. And and, and, and he puts down all this scent, and they go, I got to go over and see what that is. I got to go over and smell that thing that I'm smelling. It's so enticing, right? Uh, pe- people who, who fish, <clears throat> you know, that's the same thing you do with your lures, right? You make your lure so enticing to that fish that the fish goes, "I got to eat that," right? I mean, what kind of dumb minnow swims up there? What kind of dumb frog just swims in the middle of the lake like that? I got to eat that. We we know that enticement, right? We we, we understand the, the power of enticement. Now, think of it in a spiritual sense. A wise person realizes that when we leave the church. There is hosts of snares. It is a landmine of temptation out there. And a wise person says, look, you got to be careful. You could get hurt out there. Seriously hurt. You could seriously hurt others. Not, Not just physically, spiritually. You could hurt yourself spiritually. Stay away from this. Fight temptation here. Because if you get caught... Man, it, it is bad. It's bad. It's heartbreaking. It's hours and hours of talking and praying and relationships are hurt. People are hurt. Your, your, your relationship with the Lord suffers. Don't get caught up into a temptation. That's what a wise person would say. And a wise person says, yep, I understand that. I understand I'm temptable. Right? A wise person realizes there's a lot of temptations out there and I want every single one of them. I gotta be careful. The very thing I want is going to be my own demise. I gotta gotta be wise here. I gotta gotta rely upon the power of the Spirit. So a wise teacher speaks God's word and and he warns against leaving the path. He warns against going away from the truth. I would also say this. um, There is a lot of theological snares out there as well. Not just temptation and sin, but things that theologically are super dangerous that could lead you away from Christ. And you could be spending a lot of your time giving a lot of money, energy, resources to people that really don't care about you and don't care about your walk with the Lord. They want to use you and they want to abuse you. Stay true to the word. This is it. Take this serious. Take God serious. Follow this. Follow Jesus. Don't leave Jesus. And I'll be honest. If Greg and I stand up and we tell you to follow someone else, fire us immediately. Drag us off stage. Don't let us in. Change the locks. Don't let us back in. If we teach anything other than Jesus and the word and following Jesus in the word, kick us out. Throw rocks at us until we're dead. We're not used to. We're not any use to anyone, because that's false teaching. Now, notice the next one in verse 15. It says, "Good understanding produces favor, but the way of the treacherous is hard." <laughs> Once again, we have a, a kind of an interesting uh, parallelism here. Verse fifteen: a good a good understanding. It speaks of insight, produces favor, and favor with who? Favor with the community, and in favor with God. Insight here speaks of uh, seeing something that's there, seeing something that's there that's profound, that's profoundly helpful. Um, I've been talking about the commentators. I'm going to pick on this group of books that I have in my office as the commentators. Some of the commentators that I have have a lot of academic knowledge that I just need. I I don't know. Like, for example, when they talk about the Philistines. I don't know very much about the Philistines because they haven't been around for a long time, right? They've been dead for a long time. So I can't just go and check out the Philistine culture. But there are people, and they're not necessarily Christians, that write about the Philistines. Yeah, okay, I'll read them. That's okay. There's nothing wrong, right? It's like eating... It's like eating uh, like a ri- uh, st- uh, rack of ribs. Eat the meat and throw out the bones. I don't have to listen to everything they say, but they have some good cultural stuff. There are other commentaries. They have some profound statements. Profound statements that are very helpful to me. Profound in the sense that they draw me back to God's word. They deepen my understanding of the character and nature of God. They deepen my understanding about Christ. They deepen my understanding of myself and my sin. They have this insight into the text, and as they look at the text, they make these observations and these conclusions that you go, amen, yeah, I've been trying to say that for a long time, and I didn't have the words to say it, and you said it exactly what I've been thinking. That's a great insight. That insight of seeing God and seeing the, these, these, these great profound thoughts that Help us understand God and help us understand His will, help us understand ourselves, help us understand Christ. When we get these insights, these doctrinal, theological insights, God is happy. God is happy with those who have sound theology. He likes that. He likes that when we think correctly about reality and about His Word and we think deeply. That's incredible. Right? There's incredible blessing that comes from that. There's incredible blessing that comes with great insight. But the way of the treacherous is hard. Now, this word for hard is a hard word. It um, can mean a lot of different things. Um, but really, the image that I get here is the idea of if you imagine a tall, rocky mountain. I don't know if you've ever been on top of a tall, rocky mountain before. There's not a lot of vegetation. There's not a lot of growth. Um, It's very dangerous to walk on a tall, steep, rocky mountain. It's very stubborn. It doesn't move. One does not simply walk up to a mountain and move it, right? It's, It's a very difficult thing to climb, very dangerous, not a lot of vegetation. A treacherous person is like that. They are dangerous... They're tough, no fruit, and very stubborn. So think of this. A person who has great insight has a very fruitful and blessed life. Their, their, Their thought life, the things that they think about, just are full of these grand ideas of the character and nature of God. A treacherous person, it is like a rocky mountain, bare rocky mountain. It is like Mount Everest. No trees, no plants, very dangerous. Can't move it. Notice in verse 16, it says, Every prudent man acts with knowledge, but fools display folly. This talks about the actual application. So think of this. This actually kind of talks about Bible study, doesn't it? it? Talks about how we take God's word seriously, right? It Talks about thinking about God's word in a very serious, deep way, gaining insights. And then every prudent person, every wise person, properly applies God's word. And this knowledge that is being spoken about here is much more than just I know something about something. It is that I know God and I know the subject deeply. And my life demonstrates that I know God's word, that I'm able to take God's word, apply it to my life, and make decisions. And then when people come and say, well, what do you think about this? I then can then take God's word and give them godly advice. That's the idea here. A fool does the opposite. A fool is like a, a person who, who spreads out all of their stuff and shows everybody everything. This word is a, is a, is a word for somebody who's working in a, in a street market and they, they lay out all of their merchandise. They're displaying all their merchandise for everybody to see, right? And they want everyone to see everything. A fool, that's what he does. He, he takes his folly and he just shows everybody. It's like, come, let me show you how foolish I am. That's what a fool does. A, a, a godly, a wise person, a, a person that we should strive to be is one who takes God's word, takes the things that we find in God's word, and, and applies it correctly. This past week, I, uh, we got a chance to go to the Zink's new home in Longview. And uh, it was, their, their home was really nice, and they had a hardwood floor, and it was very nice uh, until the Hilberts got there. Um, we did, I think, almost everything we possibly could to ruin their hardwood floor while we were there. Spilled hot chocolate on the floor, felt so bad. And we were talking about how their floor was nice before the hot chocolate. And at Home Depot, I used to sell hardwood floor, so I always talk about hardwood floor. I like hardwood floor. I think it's great. And we were talking about hardwood floor and kind of walked away from the conversation saying... I know something about hardwood floors, and and uh, you know if push comes to shove, I bet me and a couple other guys we could figure out how to put in a hardwood floor. I, I don't think it would be that hard. I I know I used I knew enough to sell it, and then um, my buddy Jonathan, you remember Jonathan who was here? He's a hardwood flooring installer, uh, very 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 high end. He showed me a floor he just did, and I thought, you know what? You know hardwood floors. I know hardwood floors. But he knows hardwood floors. He's able to take a piece of wood, able to fashion it into a plank, put it on somebody's floor, put the right finish on it, install it in such a way that there's no cracks or seams, and it stays that way for years. I don't have that knowledge. I don't have that wisdom to do that. And there's really no shortcut to, to, to be that skilled of a craftsman, right? That takes a lot of time, a lot of work. That takes a lot of time researching. So we can strive to be a woodworker, but it's going to take time. The same is true to becoming wise. There's no microwavable dinner that makes you wise. There's no get wise quick. There's no pill. I wish we could freeze time and we could live... 120 years to kind of get some wisdom and then press play and then we would then have wise lives. That's not how this works. We're learning on the fly and Jesus is working on us and making us wise. But it's hard work. But it's, it's worth it. Friends, it is worth it. It is worth it to be obedient to Jesus. It is, it is worth it to be obedient to his word. The alternative is terrible. Dis, it's disastrous It will ruin you. Strive to be like Christ. Yield to the Spirit. Spend time in the Word. Listen well. So that we may become wise and we may become like our Savior, Jesus Christ. May the Lord give us both the will and the ability to do all that we heard today. Let's go ahead and let's pray. Father, we just thank you for today. We thank you for everything you blessed us with. We thank you that you have um, given us your word and that you instruct us and teach us, um, that you you lead us and you shape us into the fashion of your son, Jesus Christ. You know that we are flesh and that we are weak and that we are not very wise. We're often very foolish. And so we just continually ask for your forgiveness and your watch care over us. We thank you that you are abundant in mercy, slow to anger, forgiving your children of their sins. And so we just ask that you would continue to work on us, that we would continually grow in our, great, in, in our understanding of your grace and in the knowledge of your Son, Jesus Christ, so that we may offer up a life that is worthy of the calling with which you called us. We just uh, thank you for today. Thank you for everything you blessed us with. In your Son's name, amen.